Section 2 of Solario the Tailor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Solario the Tailor by William Bowen. The Second Night, Alb the Unicorn, Part 1. Solario the tailor was sitting at the open window of his room in the northeast tower of the castle, looking out at the stars which glittered in a clear sky over the great forest. He sighed, and rising wearily lit the candles on his table, and at that moment there came a knock on his door, and Bojan and Bodkin entered rather timidly. "'If you please, sir,' said Bonjon. "'Pray,' "'Be seated,' said Solario, and they all sat down. "'It's a warm evening,' said he. "'We thought,' said Beaujean, "'that you might perhaps be willing to tell us one of the stories that you—' "'It's very warm this evening indeed,' said Solario. "'Quite oppressive.' "'If it wouldn't be too much trouble,' said Bodkin, "'we'd like you to tell us about—' "'I don't know when I've felt the heat so much,' said the old tailor. "'But then it's the idleness. "'If there were only something to do, "'there wouldn't be so much time to think about the weather.' "'Last night, sir,' said Beaujean, "'you were obliged to leave out some parts of your story, "'and we thought—' "'If I only had a few good ells of cloth on my table,' and a man like, well, say like Mortimer the Executioner, to exercise my art on, I'd be the happiest man alive. But as it is, sitting here with nothing to do... There was one tale you mentioned, said Bonjean, about a... It's a very fine thing to be a knight of the silver lamp, said Solario. "'but there doesn't seem to be much connected with it in the nature of work. "'If I could only be employed in making a suit of clothes for Mortimer the Executioner. "'There's a subject, the biggest man I've ever seen in my life, and the hardest to fit. "'That would be an undertaking worthy of my genius. Dear, dear.' "'I'll speak to Grandfather about it,' said Beaujean. I'm sure he'll let you make a suit for Mortimer. But what we would like to know is, we would like to hear one of the stories, began Bodkin again, that the king made you leave out last night when... It made no difference to me, I assure you, said Solario, stiffly. None, whatever. But if you would only tell us, said Bodkin, I do not wish to annoy anyone with my dull tales said Solario. Far from it, far from it indeed, I assure you. But there was one, said Beaujean, about a griffin. What kind of a griffin did you say it was? I believe, if I remember correctly, it was a roving griffin. But his majesty, your grandfather... Oh, never mind, grandfather, said Beaujean. Tell us about the... I'd rather hear the one about the giant, said Bodkin. You probably have reference to the blind giant, said Solario, but... 
then there was one said Beaujean, about some cave or other the cave of montesango said solario i remember it only too well but i couldn't tell you that it would be too terrible you wouldn't be able to sleep in your beds tonight then tell us that one cried the two boys together no said solario the king would never approve if i grandfather isn't here now said Beaujean. please perhaps said solario i might tell you the story concerning the um, but i fear it would bore you no no cried the boys then i might perhaps tell you the story of alb the unicorn only yes yes tell us about the unicorn you are sure it will not weary you not a bit said Beaujean. do you mind sir said bodkin leaving out the big words i shall willingly endeavour to gratify your reasonable predilection for lucidity said solario sir said bodkin never mind said Beaujean. let him go on ahem <clears throat> said the old man clearing his throat i will give you as much of it as i can remember as it was told me by the young man in the white leather suit while we were sitting in the half-moon pasture of corby by the river tarn after i had delivered him from his enchantment you are sure it will not weary you go on go on then i will begin said solario settling himself back at his ease and folding his hands across his stomach the story of alb the unicorn you must know said the young man to me that i am called alb the fortunate i was born in the island kingdom far out in the great sea the only son of a rich goldsmith i lived with my parents by whom i was tenderly loved in the principal city of that kingdom in which city on a height overlooking the island stood the castle of the king alb the fortunate and the princess hyla my father whose skill in his art had caused him to be valued highly by the king was a familiar figure at the castle and i had there in combination with my mother become acquainted with the young princess hyla the king's only child a beautiful and amiable girl some two years younger than myself we were even permitted to play together in the gardens of the castle for the king was in no wise proud but on the contrary made a point of treating his subjects with a friendliness which endeared him to them all i need hardly tell you that from the earliest moment i knew that i loved the little princess i grew thus in time to be twelve years old although my parents had done for me all that love could devise and money could effect i had caused them much uneasiness my disposition was unnaturally gloomy i scarcely ever smiled my mind was filled with terrors i knew not why i would sit for hours in moody silence the games of other boys did not amuse me, 
and I would find myself at times weeping bitterly for no reason whatever. All that my parents could do to divert me availed nothing. I continued to be a misery to myself and to them. They feared for my health. Their wealth no longer gave them any pleasure, and an atmosphere of gloom settled down upon their house. Sometimes my mother would look mournfully into my eyes while she smoothed back the yellow hair from my forehead, and I knew that she would willingly have given all that she had to make me happy. On my twelfth birthday it chanced that I was in my father's shop alone. My mother had gone into the back room, and my father was absent for the day at the residence of a distant client. I had been trying all that morning to find some occupation to amuse me, but without success. I had finally given myself up to a restless and discontented idleness, and at the moment I was examining in my hand, without much interest, a long chain of extremely fine gold and delicate workmanship, which I had picked up from one of the cabinets in the shop. I was in the act of placing it back in its case, wondering what I should do next, when a strange figure entered the door from the street and approached me. A tattered beggar comes to the goldsmith's shop. It was an old man, evidently a beggar, a huge man, fat and heavy, his face covered by a gray beard which hung to his waist, and his eyes, which were very bright, almost hidden by shaggy eyebrows, the longest eyebrows I had ever seen on any human being. A ragged tunic of brown, belted about the middle, hung scantily to his knees, a battered felt hat flapped over his forehead, and in his hand he carried, for a staff, what seemed to be a yardstick, such as tailors use. From his belt hung a pair of large shears, also of the sort used by tailors. A queer tailor, thought I. "'Good morning, Master Melancholy,' said he. "'Have you a mind for trade this morning?' The idea of this poor creature's pretending to be a customer at such a shop as ours was too absurd. I could not restrain a little toss of the head. "'So,' said the old man, "'is that what you think?' "'Nevertheless, there is something here which I wish to buy.' He looked round the shop. "'I wish to buy a chain, a gold one, "'and I see none that pleases me "'so much as the one you are holding behind your back. "'Will you sell it?' I was astonished that he should have discovered the chain.' which I could have sworn was hidden from his eyes. I drew it forth and held it up. "'Be so good as to let me see it,' said the old man, and at the same time he took it from me before I could snatch it away. "'What may the price be, my young merchant?' said he. I was trembling with anxiety, but I thought it best to end the whole matter by naming the price.' which I found on the card which remained in the cabinet. While I hesitated, the horrid creature gazed at me with his glittering eyes through his tangled eyebrows, 
and ran his fingers down his beard like a comb. The price, I said, is four thousand gold florins. Now please give me back the chain. Uh, the price is high, said the old man. But I will take it. Then give me the money, said I. Money? said he, with an air of great surprise. Money? But I have no money. Then how are you going to buy the chain? said I. Give it back to me. I will buy it, nevertheless, said he. I will give you what is better than money. What is that? said I suspiciously. I will give you, said he, whatever you would like best in the world. Then give me back the chain. Think, said he, what would you like best in all the world for your very self? Nothing, I said, ready to cry. I want the chain back. If you don't give it to me, I said angrily, I will call my mother. With all the pleasure in the world, said the impudent old rascal. I was now ready to cry in good earnest. The old man proposes a strange bargain. But I advise you to listen to me, my young friend, went on the dreadful creature. You may make a wish, if you will, and if you don't, I will. If I keep the chain, you shall make the wish. If you keep the chain, I will make it. But I warn you, if I make the wish, I shall wish you harm, such harm that you would rather be dead than alive. Come now, will you sell me the chain for a wish? I can't, I said, I can't, and I began to cry. Then you would like to be crippled all your life, to find vipers in your bed every night, to see the princess run away from the sight of you, to suffer a sharp pain in your ears, to have all your drink turned to, No, no, I cried, please don't, please don't. Then you had better sell me the chain. What would you like best in the world? Oh, I want to be happy, I want to be happy, I'm so miserable. You really wish to be happy? Oh, yes, if I could only be happy, always happy. Think well. I can grant you that wish, if you really wish it. I wish I could be happy, always happy. The wish is granted. You shall be happy. After this day, you shall be nothing but happy, always. It is done. The chain is mine. Oh, please, if you will only wait one moment, just one, I must call my mother. I ran to the door of the back room and called my mother. She came at once, alarmed by my outcry. Together we turned back into the shop, toward the spot where I had left the old man. He was gone. I dragged my mother to the shop door, and we looked up and down the street. There was no sign of him. I ran from one corner to the next. He was nowhere in sight. I returned to my mother and threw myself on her breast and wept. The chain, I sobbed, it is gone. 
While she tried to comfort me, I told her the story. She wrung her hands. What will your father say? That evening, when my father heard what had happened, he was very angry. He was a kind man, but he scolded me so severely that I crept up to bed, weeping, without any supper. I had never been so miserable. I cried myself to sleep. When I awoke in the morning, sunshine was streaming in through the window. I sprang out of bed. A fat sparrow was hopping on the window sill, and when he saw me he cocked his head at me in the jolliest manner possible. I whistled to him and laughed after him as he flew away. While I was dressing and humming a tune the while, I suddenly remembered that I had gone to bed in tears for the loss of my father's golden chain. But I laughed as I thought of it, for the loss seemed pitifully small, and my father's anger over it was quite ridiculous. I went on with my tune, and stood before the mirror with a hairbrush in my hand. I began to brush my hair, and I cannot deny that, as I looked at its yellow and somewhat curly abundance, I thought of the princess with complacency. Now it happened that the most serious work of my life, on which I had been engaged for more than six months, had been the training of my hair to lie in a flat sweep backwards from my forehead. I had devoted much patient labor to this work. It required that I should wear on my head all day a tight skull cap, and I even suffered to the extent of wearing it in bed at night, when I could do so without my mother's knowledge. I now shook my hair from my forehead with a quick backward toss of the head, in a manner which always made my father look at me in alarm, and proceeded to brush it straight back with vigorous strokes of the brush. THE THREE BLACK HAIRS AND THE YELLOW HEAD I was in the act of applying a small quantity of dry soap when I looked at my yellow head in the mirror a trifle more attentively. My gaze became fixed, and as I held my head close to the glass, I was astonished to see there, among the yellow strands, three coarse black hairs, very distinct, one in the middle and one on either side. They did not suit me very well, and I, accordingly, with some trouble, plucked each of them out by the root. Before leaving the room, I gave a final glance of satisfaction at myself in the mirror, and a final touch of the brush to my hair. I stopped suddenly, fixed with astonishment. The three long, coarse black hairs, which I had but a few moments before plucked away, lay there as before, one in the middle of my head and one on either side. I could not understand it in the least. But, after all, what did it matter? I could not allow myself to be bothered by such a trifle. I ran downstairs, singing merrily. At breakfast I found myself prattling of a thousand things, and I was surprised to remark the confusion with which my parents received my sallies. In the midst of my talk, my mother whispered with sudden excitement into my father's ear. I did not hear what she said, but I saw his eyebrows rise, and heard him blow out his lips in a long-drawn, Oh, as if a light had dawned on him. After that, they responded gaily to my chatter, and we had altogether the merriest meal we had ever had in our lives. After breakfast, I accompanied my father to the castle, where I sought out the Princess Hyla, and found her weeping beside one of the fountains in the garden, 
because her ball had fallen into the water which filled the wide marble basin. I laughed at her, for she did not seem comical enough. She stamped her foot angrily at me, but this only made me laugh the more. I jumped into the pool and brought back the ball. She looked at me as if in bewilderment, and cried, What are you laughing at? Are you crazy? Far from being offended, I laughed more merrily than before. The king was much pleased with my little service to the princess, and after our departure my father assured me that I had advanced markedly in the king's regard. Everything, in short, was going well. From that day my unfailing spirits rejoiced my parents more and more as time went on. Their house rang with my merriment. My mother became more youthful in appearance, and as I grew older I became known throughout our city for the brightness of my face and the liveliness of my talk, and I was everywhere in demand. It is true that the three long black hairs continued in their places on my head, and my mother looked at them at times, as it seemed to me, with uneasiness. But I laughed at her, and although I sometimes plucked these hairs from my head, I did so only for the amusement of seeing them reappear in their places as before. Alp wins the promise of the princess's hand. When I was sixteen years of age, a circumstance befell which I was able to turn to good account. The princess Hyla one night unaccountably disappeared. The king was strangely disturbed by this incident, and though I could not quite understand the reason for so much perturbation, I resolved to rescue the princess and restore her to her father's arms if I could. This I was able to do, in the course of a very singular adventure, and in reward the king promised me her hand in marriage. I will now relate to you, if you wish it, the adventure by which I rescued the princess from the strange fate which involved her. It is the adventure, as I may call it, of The Rag-Picker and the Princess. It happened, said Alp the Fortunate, that the king, with his daughter, sojourned for a time at his castle in Ventimere, beside the great sea. And my father and myself, being lodged in the town hard by, on second thoughts, said Solario, interrupting himself, I will not relate this tale just now. It is too long. It will be better to go on with. But we'd like to hear it now, said Beaujean. No, said Solario firmly. It will be much better to tell it some other time. Thus said Alp, when he finished the story of his adventure, I restored the princess, with the assistance of the one-armed sorcerer whom I have mentioned, and in gratitude the king took the one-armed sorcerer to dwell with him in his castle in our own city, and promised to me the hand of the princess in marriage when I should come of age. Truly things were going well with me. A trifling incident disturbs Alb's mother. Some two years later, when I was just past my eighteenth birthday, an incident occurred in our household which caused my mother much disturbance. My father died. He had left the house on horseback in the morning for a journey to the country on a matter pertaining to his business. 
In the evening, after the shop was closed, a loud knock brought my mother and myself to the door in haste. A crowd was gathered at the entrance, and on a litter carried by two men lay my father's body, and in this manner he was borne into the shop. His horse had thrown him, and his neck was broken. My mother threw herself upon him and wailed. She tried to arouse him. She talked to him as if he were alive. She even went so far as to try to call him back to life. I was, at first, greatly astonished at her behavior, and then it struck me as being excessively ridiculous. To think of trying to call back the dead to life! It was highly amusing. I felt a tide of merriment rising within me. I laughed. I have never seen on any human being's face the look of horror which my mother turned on me when she heard my laugh. She crouched away from me in fear. Her sobbing ceased, and her eyes remained fixed on me. They grew wider and wider. I began to wonder how long they could stare so without winking. I glanced at the others in the room, and was surprised to see that no one else even so much as smiled. It was useless to remain longer in a company so dead to the brighter things of life. I controlled my good humor and composed my features, and patted my mother affectionately on the shoulder. But she recoiled from my touch, and without appearing to take her inconsiderate behavior in ill part in the least, I left the room. Unreasonable Conduct of the Goldsmith's Widow it astonished me afterwards to observe that my mother met my customary gaiety with coldness, for she had always seemed to take great pleasure in it. She grew very gloomy indeed. I could not discover any reason for it, but I did what I could to cheer her by my own liveliness. For some reason or other, my father's death appeared to have a depressing effect on her. I made my jokes and sang my songs as usual but she reached such a state in a few months that she would scarcely speak to me, but on the contrary spent most of her time in her room, alone. I noticed, in the course of time, a slight change in the manner of my customers and friends. The former transacted their business briefly, without an unnecessary word, and the latter appeared to avoid me, as if they scarcely wished to know me any longer. It was very amusing." In less than a year after my father's death, my mother died. It was thought by some that my father's death had something to do with her decline, but how that could be I never could understand. The merrymakers are suddenly sobered. The night of the day on which she died was the night fixed for a feast at the house of one of my friends. After looking for a moment into the room where she lay, I dressed myself carefully for the occasion, and found myself thrilled with pleasant anticipation. A large and merry company met at table at my friend's house. I talked in my best manner, and whatever coldness I might have observed before was dispelled in the general gaiety. Toward the close of the banquet, I chanced to remark across the table that my mother had that day died. The effect of this remark was astonishing. As it passed from one to another, silence fell upon the company. I wondered if I had made some blunder. I endeavored in vain to relieve the awkwardness of the moment by changing the subject, 
and commencing a story with which I had never failed to provoke a laugh. But in this case it provoked not so much as a smile. I was absolutely perplexed. The party soon broke up in what appeared to be confusion, and I went home to enjoy in my own room the recollection of those lugubrious faces. When I was twenty-one, I was married to the princess, and thenceforth the castle was my home. I sold the business which my father had left me, and settled down to a life of unbounded bliss with my dear Hyla, whom as a wife I found even more adorable than I had dreamed. I became the life of the castle. The faces of my new acquaintances always brightened in my company. I was the only one in that glittering society who never knew a dull or uneasy moment. My presence was like a ray of sunshine in the court. I noticed after a while that the princess, my wife, began to respond to my constant gaiety more carelessly. At times she would sit and look at me wonderingly. I knew not why. One day she asked me to accompany her on a little excursion in the city. She did not tell me where she meant to go, but I asked nothing. It was enough to be with her. I could not conceal my surprise, however, when she stopped our carriage at the entrance to the city's poorest quarter. But I had no doubt she had planned some pleasant diversion, and I followed her, talking in my liveliest manner all the while. She herself was quite silent. She led me from one hovel to another for more than an hour. In one we saw a sick child lying on a pallet of straw on a dirt floor, and around him his mother and sisters and brothers all weeping absurdly. I rallied the mother on it in the pleasantest way possible, but she did not take it in very good part. In another we found an old man, blind and alone, without food and without wife or child, talking to himself in a gibberish which was truly laughable. I tried for sport to talk to him in the same sort of gibberish, but though it was excellent sport, I saw that for some reason or other it did not abuse my wife, so I led her away. In another place, I saw a man who was evidently overcome by wine, and who appeared to be in terror of certain vipers and spiders, which, as I ascertained, existed nowhere but in his own imagination. This man was the prize of the whole collection. I amused myself with him for a long time, and I was altogether so greatly diverted that the princess had some difficulty in dragging me away. On the way home, I commented on what we had seen with a drollery which I had thought sufficient to draw a smile from a stone. But the princess was unmoved. She sat in stony silence, and when we reached the castle she went at once to her room, and I saw her no more that day. Not long afterwards, a beautiful boy was born to us, and in course of time he grew to be the finest child of his age in the island kingdom. There were many who said so, even to his mother. He was two years of age, when on a certain day in summer his mother sent him into the gardens with a nurse, while she remained with me in conversation in her room. Some half-hour later I was telling her an amusing story, which I had recently heard, when the door burst open, and a manservant rushed into the room carrying our boy, dripping wet, in his arms, and laid him in his mother's lap. The child was dead. The nurse had left him beside the same fountain pool from which, years before, I had rescued his mother's ball, 
and in her absence he had fallen into the water. The princess turned pale and screamed. She clasped the child to her breast and rocked him back and forth. She spoke to him as if he was still alive, and even tried to call him back to life. I smiled at her delusion. I put my hand on her shoulder and shook her gently. She looked up at me with streaming eyes, and saw the bright and smiling look on my own face. Come, my dear, I said kindly, laughing quietly as I spoke. There is no use talking to him like that, you know. You must be reasonable. The dear little fellow is dead, that is all. Surely there is nothing in that to disturb you. Look at me. I'm not disturbed. I can't understand what you find in this to bother you. Come, let the good man take him away to another room, and I will go on with the story I was telling when we were interrupted. She rose slowly, never taking her eyes from me, and hugging the child closer, backed away from me, and suddenly turned and fled from the room. I smiled to myself at the whimsical nature of woman. It was a long time before she would speak to me, and although I did not permit this to ruffle me, I waited with some impatience for her explanation. I was, of course, reluctant to blame her too much without giving her an opportunity of explaining her conduct. I was accordingly pleased when she took me aside one day and asked to speak with me in private. She sat down before me in her room and looked me steadily in the eyes. The princess finds her husband bewitched. Alb, said she, this can go on no longer. You are bewitched. I smiled indulgently. I am not aware of it, I said. Tell me, she said earnestly. What are those three black hairs in your head? Oh, those? They are nothing. I found them there after the old beggar had pretended to grant me a wish long ago. What old beggar? Now I am learning something. Tell me about the old beggar and the wish. What does it matter? He was a ragged old fellow with shaggy eyebrows, carrying a yardstick and a tailor's shears, and I sold him a fine gold chain for a wish. And right angry my father was, too. But I was only twelve years old, you know. Why have you never told me this before? What was the wish? The wish? Oh, I wished... I wished I might be perfectly happy, always. Always happy. A pretty good wish, I think. A terrible wish. A frightful wish. Tell me. Tell me. Have you ever wept since you were twelve years old? Of course not. How absurd. There has never been anything for me to weep about. That's it. That's it. That's the curse. You can't weep. You've got to be cured of happiness. Cured of happiness. This idea was so preposterous that I laughed loud and long. But while I was still laughing, she took me by the hand and led me into a distant part of the castle, where I had never been before, until we came to the foot of a narrow, winding stair in a tall tower. We climbed the stairs, and stopped at last, panting, on a little landing before a door. The princess knocked, and without waiting for an answer, opened the door and drew me in after her. We were in a small, circular room, evidently at the very top of the tower, from the windows of which I could see far across the city, and beyond the distant mountains, to the great sea. Alb and the princess visit the one-armed sorcerer. 
In the center of this room was a spinning wheel, and before this spinning wheel was the one-armed sorcerer whom I had met in the adventure which had gained me the princess for my wife. A spare old man, with bright blue eyes and a rosy face, and long white hair and beard, and clothed in a blue gown spangled with silver stars. He rose, smiling at us kindly, and motioning us with his only hand, his left, to sit down. And when we were seated, the princess told him the story of the old vagabond who had granted me a wish. He nodded understandingly, and the princess said, We have come to you for help. Will you help him get rid of his curse? I laughed merrily. I am pretty well satisfied as I am, I said. I don't wish to be cured of anything. And yet, said the one-armed sorcerer, you ought to want to be cured. Your trouble is that you can't weep. Let me tell you something. When people can weep, it's because there's some good in them. When they can't weep, it's because all the good in them is frozen up hard. Nobody can weep all the time, any more than anybody can be happy all the time, unless it's a bewitched creature like yourself. I'm not sure which would be worse, to weep all the time, or to be happy all the time, but one thing I'm sure of, and that is that it's best for us all to have a little weeping and a little happiness, sometimes the one and sometimes the other, woven together in all shades of light and dark. And if you want to come out in a beautiful pattern at last, there's no other way to do it. Laugh and weep, weep and laugh. That's the whole story, and a fine story it is too, and well worth having a part in. Oh, cried the princess, who was now weeping softly, will you help him to have a part in it like the rest of us? I am very comfortable as I am, said I, smiling. Do you know, said the princess, how to cure him? I can tell him how to cure himself, said the sorcerer. Then please tell us at once, said the princess. There is danger in it, said the sorcerer. Danger doesn't bother me, said I, beginning to take an interest. Good, said the sorcerer. Then I will tell you. Have you ever heard of the half-moon pasture of Corby, by the river Tarn? Neither of us had ever heard of it. It lies beyond the great sea. Would you like to make a journey there? That would be jolly, I cried. The half-moon pasture of Corby is the end of your journey where you will get rid of the third black hair, and be cured. What? I cried in astonishment. Yes, the third of the three black hairs in your head. I had forgotten all about them. Certainly this was a knowing old sorcerer. End of section 2 Recording by Todd